All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you on January 6, 2015, for the first show of this new year, 2015. Uh, I'd like to uh, also remind you that I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in a partnership with Chen Lin, who is publishing uh, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? And Chen's newsletter, by the way, it is time, if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter, now is the time to do it. He uh, he does accept new subscribers, a limited number of new subscribers, up until about the middle of January. And so uh, if you're interested in signing up uh, for Chen's service, I would suggest that you go to miningstocks.com. You do need to put your name on a, on a waiting list still, uh, but there are still some available spots open for Chen's letter uh, in the new uh, quarter, the quarter that just begins here in January. So go to miningstocks.com to sign up for Chen Lin. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, at miningstocks.com. Dot com as well. Also, like to encourage you uh, to send your your complaints, uh, your praises, uh, your thoughts, whatever questions you might have to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four Taylor at gmail.com. I read all of the comments. There uh, generally isn't a lot of time to discuss. Uh, or pass them on to the listeners on this show, but I do read every one of them that comes in. So please send them along to me, uh, positive or negative, or any uh, other thoughts that you might have about our show or any topics that are discussed on our show. So I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, and Cornerstone Capital. And I must tell you that all three of those companies are also recommendations in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I would also like to tell you that in no way do I take payments for recommendations in my newsletter. I recommend companies that I believe have a very good chance of doing well in the markets in the gold share markets and other markets as well. Well, we are going to be talking to uh, J. Michael Oliver uh, and John Rubino later today about those topics, uh, but especially want to hear what uh, Michael Oliver has to say from his technical point of view. Michael has been extremely good at picking out uh, support levels and areas where you can buy uh, stocks or when to get out. Uh, He's done exceptionally well. One of his great calls last year was uh, to buy Chinese stocks. When everybody else was really saying, don't go near Chinese stocks, his technical analysis 
uh, was telling him, well, it looks like it might be a good time to buy Chinese stocks. And it was, uh, as Chen Lin noticed, noted recently on one of our shows, it was one of the best. Uh, it was a fabulous call. Well, Michael's uh, made a lot of other great calls, and we want to hear what he has to say about the gold markets, the equity markets, which are in turmoil right now, the uh, the, the treasury markets, uh, stronger than ever, seemingly, uh, and the junk bond markets, which are running into some trouble. All of these and many more topics we'll be talking to uh, Michael about, and and also John Rubino. Uh, I want to mention just a, a few things uh, about my newsletter and about my sponsors. First of the sponsors, I just mentioned their names. Uh, Dynacore Gold Mines is certainly a favorite stock of mine. It has been for a number of years. It's uh, displayed steady growth through its uh, its uh, uh, ore purchase program in uh, Peru. Uh, has uh, spent a lot of years there growing, developing relationships, doing great work, getting high recovery rates for its miners, uh, and Dynacore Gold Mines has built steady profits growing every year and only has 36.4 million shares outstanding. $1.63 is where the stock is trading today. Uh, certainly, I, in my view, one of the lower-risk gold miner, mining companies out there, but one that has tremendous upside potential. Uh, as it starts to mine some of its own ore from a very high-grade deposit, uh, and then it also has a, a very, a very prospective uh, porphyry gold copper depart, uh, uh, target as well. That several major mining companies uh, are chafing at the bit to uh, to share to explore uh, on a joint venture basis with Dynacore. So Dynacore is definitely one of my favorite stocks. And by growing in organically, internally, they've not raised a lot of capital, not had to go out to the markets and to dilute shareholders' interest. Uh, so I think it's one of the better stories around. Uh, I'm actually declaring Novo Gold as my top pick for 2015. And I see Novo Gold, as I say that today, is actually down by about nine cents. Uh, so... Uh, certainly, uh, I'm not looking terribly good on that call so far this year. I do expect to have Quinton Henning with me in the near future to discuss the developments of Novo Gold's property in Australia. Uh, that is a company that already in the very early goings has some 424,000 ounces of free milling surface gold grading 1.47 grams per ton, uh, open pitable deposit. Uh, free milling. Uh, I expect that those numbers will grow very dramatically in uh, by the end of this year, as the company is doing a lot of very shallow, uh, low-cost drilling on its property in Australia. And it also has the prospects, in my view, of becoming an early producer of gold uh, from its Australian project. And uh, what is most exciting, of course, where the real blue sky comes uh, from this deposit, from this company's story, uh, is the potential uh, of finding another Whitwaters Rand gold deposit. Now, that may, for those of you who realize that Whitwaters Rand is the largest uh, gold deposit ever found on the face of the earth, that may sound uh, like I'm hyping this story. I don't mean to do that at all. I really truly believe that uh, Quinton Henning, who is highly regarded as a geologist, uh, is doing some very, very good work. And uh, at the very least, it looks like he could have a viable gold-producing mine in the not-too-distant future. In many ways, perhaps, much as Dynacor has done, grow its company organically. It has uh, around $10 million in the till, so it's well-funded to continue exploring low-cost funding 
Uh, and uh, they are putting one deep hole down uh, in the search for geological information that may help them find that Whitwaters Rand deposit. Uh, but Quinton will be on our show sometime in the near future to talk more about what's going on with his project in Australia. And Cornerstone Capital uh, is a true penny stock. No getting around that. Uh, I think selling at around $0.10 cents a share or so. Uh, it is uh, what I think might be a very significant copper porphyry, copper gold porphyry deposit in Ecuador. Uh, some of the most phenomenal drill holes that I have seen in recent years have been reported from that deposit. Uh, it requires more drilling to determine the lateral extent of this and, uh, and the economics of, of that deposit. But based on what we're seeing so far, it looks like it could be uh, a very, very big winner uh, depending on what happens. And uh, Ecuador seems to be somewhat more positive in terms of its uh, political risk than it might have been in the past. Of course, no doubt that's one of the reasons the stock is selling as low as it is, combined with, of course, what has been one of the most horrendous bear markets in the junior gold sector that I can remember since I started writing my newsletter back in 1981. Uh, would like to remind you also uh, that uh, I do have a talk to David Jensen midweek on this show uh, about the gold markets. I expect we will be posting something from David, a discussion I'll have with him probably on Wednesday. Uh, whether it gets posted on Wednesday or Thursday, I'm not sure. Uh, also, uh, but, but we will be posting something. I expect uh, a discussion with David. Some very, I think, very insightful uh, remarks about the gold markets and what is actually really going on in the gold markets and uh, talking about what's really happening. We also talked to Daniel McAdams, post his discussion uh, with me on the weekends uh, on geopolitics. What is really going on the, uh, with uh, behind the scenes with the United States and its uh, relationships with other countries, especially the Middle Eastern countries and Russia as well. Well, I've titled today's show, Swimming Naked, How Could Gold Bugs Have Been So Wrong? And uh, as I mentioned earlier, John Rubino and Michael Oliver will be our guests today. You know, Warren Buffett observed that, quote, you only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out, end of quote. Well, gold shares were among the worst performers in 2014. So does that mean that uh, the gold mining companies uh, are swimming naked? Does that mean that they are the, the companies that really don't have anything on, that they don't really have anything to brag about or any virtues? Well, um, or could it be possibly that the uh, real naked swimmers are mainstream debt-ridden firms? Well, Zero Hedge just published an article titled, Commodity Prices Are Cliff Diving Due to the F Fracturing Monetary Supernova, uh, The Case of Iron Ore. And uh, I think that Zero Hedge is really on to something with respect to their concerns about the enormous indebtedness in the global economy that has come, of course, uh, with the absence of any anchor to currency creation without any kind of discipline involved. We have seen uh, a, a leveraged global economy, the likes of which has never been seen before in the history of humankind. The notion that you can print money and create wealth, of course, is absurd. Uh, it is, though, however, what people win uh, their Nobel Prizes off of, it seems. Uh, uh, the infamous writer from the New York Times comes to mind, of course. Uh, I believe it's uh, the big lie that is being told by us and in our media day in and day out. Uh, so we're going to be talking to John Rubino ab about this topic and others, uh, primarily about the credit markets and, and the equity markets. Um, I think that uh, what we're really seeing here now is a, a huge deflation 
of asset prices because of this indebtedness. I think what we're seeing is John Exter's inverted pyramid in which he, uh, John sees that even uh, printing money, as we have been doing, would result in a collapse of prices uh, until the system itself breaks down. And then outside of that pyramid is gold. And uh, ultimately, John believed that, that the global economy will have no choice but to gold to a, uh, an asset-based um, uh, monetary system. Well, that may still seem far-fetched to those of us in the United States and the Western world, uh, but the Russians and the Chinese and other countries uh, are not looking at it as if it is such an absurd idea. They are going back to uh, the roots of, of uh, seemingly, uh, at least some people within those societies are looking at the roots of sound money, which I think we would do well to do, but clearly that's not the uh, the religion of, uh, of the Keynesian monetarist uh, of our time. So, uh, well, we do have to go to break uh, now. First um, commercial break coming up. But don't go away because we'll be right back with uh, J. Michael Oliver, who always has some very interesting and, I think, uh, profit-making ideas to share with you. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, backed by popular demand, J. Michael Oliver. Uh, Michael uh, really has been around uh, he's been around the sun about as often as I have, so he he's, has a lot of experience, which is, I think, very important. Uh, young folks out there, those of you who are listening, uh, listen to your elders, because uh, I think Michael has a lot of very important uh, insights, not just from experience, but because of his own expertise and his own unique way of looking at markets, which I think makes him very valuable. He has quite a background, uh, having worked at E.F. Hutton, those old Older folks out there will remember that name. Younger people may not. Uh, but uh, he, he's studied with some of the top people in technical analysis, uh, has had a great background, has worked with, uh, has had clients, uh, has traveled and uh, actually went to work on his own, uh, and has had major household name clients in the past. And now uh, he is also providing his expertise uh, on a retail basis for 
let's say for accredited investors, people that uh, are you know have substantial portfolios, but people uh, who can take advantage and and trade off of Michael's um, expertise. Uh, so I'm really pleased to have. Michael, with me again before I say hello to Michael, though I would like to uh, suggest that you go to Oliver MSA, that's uh, www.olivermsa.com for more information uh, from Michael Oliver. Thank you for joining me today, Michael. Uh, Thank you, Jay, for having me back. It's really always good to talk to you, and I want to do this more often because I think I just really enjoy your missives. I think they are very insightful. Uh, but, you know, interesting is one thing, making money is another, and uh, I've seen how you can make money for people. I've watched your calls, and um, I think they're very sound. I liked especially the one, uh, the China call last year, which I thought was just just really superb. I mean, everybody was down on China about as hard as you could get, and your technical tools were telling you, you might start paying attention to it, and then sure enough, uh, when you pulled the trigger, it did very, very well. So uh, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about China today, but I would like to talk to you about some of the things that are really you know, really in the news these days, some of the markets that are really taking people, uh, shaking them up a little bit, starting with oil. Uh, what are you seeing with oil? It looks like a falling knife to me. And I'm, you know, you'd say, well, gee, oil at $48 today, I see this looks really cheap. Let's buy some or let's, let's go long on some of the oil stocks. Uh, and yet, uh, we always say, don't try to catch a falling knife. What do you see about oil now, and, and how soon do you think we might see the knife bounce off the table and we have a chance to possibly think about buying it again? Well, the, I was very confident at $96 back in the summer when it came down from uh, above 100 When it broke 96 it blew all of my momentum structures out. It said uh, I broke annual momentum, 200-week momentum, a lot of uh, factors that I watch. Not short-term stuff, not trading stuff, but big-grade technical signal. And so the collapse is sort of not surprising given that you've broken something major. And when you break something major that has been building for years, in this case these structures had been developing for three or four years under the oil market, uh, you get a big response. I was uh, intrigued uh, last year and in late 2013 with a notion I threw out called contractionary event. And I was looking at gold, copper, and oil. And gold, of course, had its big contractionary event, but had a little effect on the stock market because, after all, gold, there's no big sector of gold in, within the S&P, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, copper also paid some heavy dues. It used to be 450 and dropped under 3 uh, That's That's some dues paying. But oil hung in there. Mm-hmm. And I wondered why. And it, it dawned on me that the reason is, uh, if you want to personify a market, oil is not going to break, was not going to break, until and unless the S&P was technically ready to feel the effects Ah. And I think oil chose the time last starting this summer, especially in the last few months, where it's like a torpedo being fired at the equity market. My assumption was that it would affect the oil stocks and therefore drag the S&P down, but that really isn't what happened. What happened is the oil market affected the debt markets, Uh high-yield debt markets in particular, which is a trend that's been underway since January, where it's clear that investors are divesting themselves of what Bernanke wanted them to buy, namely high-yield risk on debt. And oil has now punched a hole in that in that asset category, and those spreads are going crazy on the upside, meaning favoring government debt as opposed to emerging market bonds or corporate debt. And so that's a very dangerous situation for the equity market. So I think it's one step removed, but oil did the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it infected the debt market. The debt market torpedo is now headed to the equity markets. And I think mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing. As 
far as an oil bottom, uh, I'm not clear. I'm clear on one thing. The first low will not be the low. Mm-hmm. So if you make a low in oil at 45, and next thing you know you're 55, uh, that was not the low. I'm 90% sure that any first low will fail. It will produce a rally, a tradable rally. But I do not think the final low will occur with the first low. I think it's a process that will take at least until the second quarter of, of this year mm-hmm. before you can make a what might be a lasting low. I don't know that it's a lot lower than we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, oil has done its job, I think. And I think by simply staying in a low price zone, it has its impact now on the debt markets. But you mm-hmm. don't need to have oil continue to collapse. It's already collapsed to the levels that if it stays here, will infect certain instruments <laughs> that are oh, yeah. uh, based upon higher oil prices. And so that's all it really needs to do to do its job. But right. as far as buying oil, I have no interest. I might have interest in the second quarter after a first rally fails, and then we come back down. At that point, I'll start paying attention. But right now, I would not, other than on a trading basis, I would not buy oil. Mm-hmm. So don't you don't. So there's there's virtually no chance of a V-shaped recovery here for oil, in, in so. which no. in which all these other markets you talk about might be saved. For example, there's no. going to be some real carnage, I would think, if oil stays in these levels with, uh, you, you know, with the frackers, with the marginal producers, are going to be in big trouble. And those that have borrowed up to the hilt, uh, we could really mm-hmm. start to see sort of a a chain reaction, perhaps, is what you're talking about, and what you think is going on in the equity markets now. I, I think that uh, oil was the was the first torpedo, and I was mistaken as to uh, back a year ago in, in my uh, cause-effect relationship that oil would be the one that drags down the equity market uh, because of the XLE, for example, the energy sector. Uh, it's not that. It's, it's more complicated, and I, then it dawned on me earlier this year when uh, we saw earlier last year, excuse me, when the uh, debt spread started to move, that that's where the torpedo was headed. And I think that's, I think it's unavoidable now. I think it's mm. in motion and it can't be stopped. It's in motion and it can't be stopped. So right. let's, let's just ask, let's talk about the, uh, about the equity markets then. Uh, in, uh, it was uh, recently, I think it was December 21st in your letter, you said, and I quote, this sell-off, this sell-off had better stop very soon and very near. It needs to avoid 1940 to, 19, uh, I think, 1925. I, I don't know if I have these numbers written down right. Uh, and the bulls need to, not one, halt the decline now, and two, more importantly, they need to get price uh, back up over 2020 on the S&P mm-hmm. uh, and not look back again, not be at or below that price level during 2015. Well, we, well are. we are. Uh, <laughs> we are. We're at 2,000 today, I noticed, a little under at one point. I don't know exactly. I'm looking at it right now. 2014, it says on the S&P at the moment. Um, the, uh, we've done the damage, mm-hmm. in my view. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a rally today, tomorrow, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Uh, the structural damage has been done. The issue now, for what, from my point of view, my MSA's perspective, is the timing and the nature of the decline. I'm pretty sure where we're going. Uh, at least as a minimum target, and it's in the 1600s on the S&P mm-hmm. 500, which is wow. to say about 20% off the top. I think most developed market indexes will match that either under a little bit less or a little bit more than what the S&P does. I think the two biggest uh, culprits and therefore the two biggest victims of this decline will probably be blue-chip U.S. stocks, that's the S&P 500, and the Nikkei 225. Mm-hmm. Europe, which is where most analysts 
focus on the economic weakness, I think Europe will actually be less weak in price terms, equity indexes, than will be the S&P. Um, this is sort of contrarian to the economic view out there that you know Europe is basically in a recession or flat, and mm-hmm. we're not. But I, the technicals tell me the opposite is going to occur. Mm-hmm. Likely the S&P and the Nikkei, which are the two most, after all, if you think about it, they're the two most bloated blue-chip indexes in the developed world, bloated by monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Sure. The JGB has done, has done a Fed on us. In fact, they invented it. You know, they <laughs> invented the QE. Uh, yeah. And they have done a heck of a job of driving the Nikkei up. Uh, and I think that when the rubber band snaps, therefore the Nikkei and the S&P will give up more on a percent mm-hmm. basis more rapidly mm-hmm. than will Europe, which really, on a, for instance, most of the European indexes were loitering either side of the 2011 highs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be like S&P right now at 1300 and something. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's a price issue there that they have not been egregiously bid up, and we have. Okay, Michael, what do you think then about the, the euro? What's your forecast for the euro? The euro, I'm, I'm looking for the, the dollar I turned bullish on in 2012 in the upper mm-hmm. 70s dollar index. It's now it got mm-hmm. up to 91, um, mm-hmm. and at most of that was in the last six months. But I think the dollar is due for a corrective, congestive pullback. And I don't, I'm not looking for anything horrendous. Uh, we might be topping the dollar here, but it's not going to be a situation where you top and go down seriously. It will be a process that will extend out a couple of quarters. But the first phase of that is I think the dollar has, stands a good chance of stalling. Now, that would involve the dollar index, of course, is 57% the euro. So yeah. that's the heaviest weighted currency there. The, the yen is the second. I'm quite positive on the yen right now for a trade and possibly something even larger. Uh-huh. Uh, and people might scratch their head and say, how can you have that view when they print so many yen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, all I can say is when you measure currencies, you're always rel- measuring relative, uh, pardon the word, junk. Okay, yeah. so uh, well, a currency can go up and not necessarily be solid. Uh, but the yen looks like it's overdue for a very strong rally. The euro, mm. I think, um, I can't get very positive on it, even on an intermediate basis, but I could say that I think that what I see in the dollar suggests that the euro could get some respite, some fumbling rally, some wasting time where it's not going down sharply, and, and therefore give the dollar its chance to pull back. And during that time, I think the yen is the place to look, and that is a very disruptive currency if it rallies, by the way. Yeah. Uh, oh, you mean in terms of the global markets? Yeah. Uh, yes, Absolutely. Yeah, well, that'd be fascinating too. I mean, not to, uh, unnerving, perhaps too. But in any event, uh, so um, the dollar. You mentioned the dollar. You know, I noticed that you, you like to look at pairs. You like to look at spreads. And one very interesting spread uh, that you've talked a lot about is uh, U.S. Treasuries to high yield to high yield bonds. TLT to HYG, for example, two ETFs that you use. And I've actually decided to. Uh, to use that in my newsletter portfolio, I'm using TLT and another junk bond uh, ETF. But do you think that's a that's a good trade going forward at this point in you time know, yet? It's- I think it's going to go up. I think the TLT will continue to outperform the high high yield. In other mm-hmm. words, you'll continue to have money move out of the high yield assets and into TLT into government mm-hmm. debt. So it's not like there's money is fleeing the debt markets. It's not. It's just moving from one side uh-huh. to the other. And it's actually, right. it's actually not just a spread gain of TLT versus HYG. It's a net price thing. Uh, TLT is going up and HYG is going down. So yeah. the spread is working because both aspects of the spread are going in the proper direction. I think there's more to come there. It could be dramatic. But mm-hmm. it's not the kind of thing I can suggest to somebody because the move has already been very big. Oh, well, yeah, chasing. of course. And that's, that's why 
That's why I was wondering if you think there's still some more to come, but but uh, maybe look. Uh, I'll be watching your your work to to determine when we might uh, want to get out of there and take some profits. I suppose. Well, I think but, the better play on that right now is I actually short the equity markets because I think they they have a lagged effect to that that uh, spread. Uh huh. Very good. The, okay. The, the, the dragon's tail hasn't swung yet, and, mm-hmm. and the, the best gains are short the S and P because of that debt spread. Okay, very good. Well, we only have a, a couple of minutes left here, and we've got to touch on gold. I mentioned gold and the dollar seem to be uh, correlated uh, positively now for a change, and uh, at least since around Christmas. Uh, but uh, you put out something here recently on gold and the S&P 500. Clearly, uh, since about the start of this year, we've well, the first couple of trading days, we've seen a dramatic switch. Uh, the equity market is getting hammered extremely hard, and, and gold uh, showing quite a bit of strength actually here. How do you? How are you looking at this going forward? Now, are we? Is this a new trend? Do you think? I think it's about to become one. I think it's almost destined. The way uh, when I look at the long-term spread relationship between gold and the S and P. Remember, gold beat the pants off the S and P for ten years, right. eleven years almost. Uh, if you own gold and were short the S and P from two thousand to two thousand eleven, you made gobs of money. We've yep. had a big big drop in the spread, but it's it looks to be a big corrective drop. Now, if gold right now, if you divide the price of gold into the price of the S&P and express the result as a percent, you'll find it's just above 60% right now, mm-hmm. gold to S&P. If that closes uh, weeklies, monthlies out above about 63 to 64%, somewhere in that zone, that is a breakout. And that tells me that the asset category shift is underway again, favoring gold, disfavoring equities. And I don't mean for a few weeks. I'm, I'm talking about something that looks like it could last for a couple of years. Uh-huh. Uh, it looks major, and it looks near. So uh, a therefore, return, I think that spread says a lot. So a return to the uh, to the secular bull market in gold, perhaps. So don't know yep. if you look at it in those terms or not, but uh, yep. certainly I've looked at it as if we've never been out of the secular bull market. We've taken quite a, a correction here in a cyclical bear, but in any event, um, we'll see. But that's why your work is so interesting. And I might mention, I mean, you don't have a set time of publication you you put out things when you see something very important you put it out to your uh, to, to your subscribers that's right I, it's uh, on average at least a report or two per day oh and i know I, it's, it's you, yeah. you're prolific uh you, you work extremely hard for your subscribers and uh uh yeah i would think that accredited investors people who uh, you know who have a fair amount of money to uh, to invest might want to take advantage of, of your service now that you're making it available not just to large institutions but also to uh, uh, to to investors. So it's OliverMSA.com. Oliver, O-L-I-V-E-R, M, M as in Mary, S as in Sam, A as in Albert.com. Uh, anything else, uh, Michael, before we conclude our discussion no, I, today? I think we, uh, we're, we're approaching the potential for very fast markets. Uh, where a lot of that I, I see cooking here could uh, come uncorked very quickly. Uh, in other words, a very strong up move in gold, a very sharp down move in the S&P, and not something that's uh, dragged out. Uh, I could see the S&P under the right circumstances dropping 20% within weeks, um, and uh, the numbers are not far. In fact, just below today's low, I had some numbers. And if we get to, uh, I'll give you the number, it's 1988 S&P. If you trade that number, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's white knuckle flight. Wow. Okay. Well, fascinating stuff. The sparks could be flying here. They are certainly flying early already in 2015. I want to thank you very much, Michael, for being with us again, and we look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. John, uh, author, prolific author, 
uh, writes a lot of uh, a lot of very interesting things on his website, dollarcollapse.com. Uh, we'll be right back with John Rubino. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TSXV and CTNXF on the OTC. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Rubino, who uh, really doesn't need uh, much of an introduction to most of you, I think, probably know John. Uh, he has co-authored a couple of books with James Turk, who's also been on this show a number of times, uh, The Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It, and then more recently, The Money bu- Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, and uh, you can avail yourself to, uh, or at least gain access to uh, purchasing those books at dollarcollapse.com and uh, also catch up with a lot of the things that John writes on a regular basis at dollarcollapse.com. Also a lot of other very interesting articles posted uh, at that site. So I would uh, suggest uh, that uh, those of you listening may certainly want to check out uh, John's website. Welcome, John. It's good to have you with me again. Good to be back, Jerry. You know, it's uh, a really interesting uh, uh, title of a, of a missive you wrote a couple of days ago, a few days ago, um, and it was titled, well, it, 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 it was a quote, it was titled based on a quote from Warren Buffett in which Warren Buffett said, you only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And what Buffett was referring to then, of course, was uh, the financial markets. When, uh, when the markets decline, you start to realize uh, th- those that those quality companies as opposed to those that are uh, essentially naked, so to speak. Um, you, you said that um, uh, that you believe the problems that we're having now, this enormous amount of liquidity of, of uh, leverage and debt that we have now, has its roots in the 1980s when we got too lazy and borrowed too much money. 
Could you explain? Sure. Well, actually, you could go back to the 1970s when we took the dollar off the the last vestiges of the gold standard uh-huh. um, and, and call that the roots of our, our troubles. But statistically, uh, it was in the 1980s that we really started living beyond our means, you know, and, and that, that is a normal thing for a, a rich society that has seen mostly good times for a while uh, that, that we just get lazy. You know, human nature is such that... Uh, yeah. If you've been winning the Super Bowl year after year, <laughs> you tend not to win it in the following year because you get lazy. You don't work as hard as you used to. And uh, and that was America beginning in the 1980s. We, we started borrowing huge amounts of money, and then that led the federal government to have to print huge n- numbers of dollars in order to finance our increasing debts. And so the, you know, the, the basic fundamental um, tenant that underlies, I, I think, Austrian economics and, and any kind of common sense when you're looking at an economy is that easy money <clears throat> leads to malinvestment. In other words, if people are willing to give you money for basically anything you want to do, you'll do a lot of stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's really been true for the U.S. since the 1980s. And by virtue of the U.S. being the most powerful economy in the world, it's been true of the rest of the world, too. Basically, uh, we were willing to buy anything from the rest of the world with borrowed money. And that led China, who was the main producer of, you know, basically cheap junk back in the day, uh, to um, embark on an infrastructure spending binge that is epic. You know, we've never seen anything like this, what China did in the last 20 years. And uh, in the process, they bid up the prices of raw materials around the world. And so, Easy money beginning in the U.S. basically flowed around the world and caused people to build overcapacity in iron ore and copper and shale oil recently in the U.S. And, uh, and the, the big container ships that were necessary to move all this stuff around the world, all of that got grossly overbuilt. And so now we're seeing... Um, the U.S. run out of borrowing capacity and China run out of borrowing capacity. And everybody's kind of trying to pull back, you know, the, the, the amount of debt we can take on to, um, to do things like build new roads and bridges and airports and in China's case, entire cities, is, um, it, there's less of it than there used to be. And so the price of all of this stuff is going down. And so now, in effect, the tide is cooling out. The tide of easy money has gone out. And we're seeing a lot of really ugly naked bodies on the beach. Mm. And, uh, you know, among them, uh, the, the one that's most in the news right now is, is um, the U.S. shale oil sector. Mm-hmm. That, that was the big bubble in the mm-hmm. U.S. that replaced basically the mortgage bubble of the previous decade, where, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you had uh, um, an option on some land in one of the Dakotas, for instance, um, you could borrow as much money as you wanted to and, and stick oil wells there or oil rigs there. And uh, people would lend you as much as it took. And so that's what happened. You have this huge boom, uh, mostly financed by junk bonds. And now uh, about 170 billion energy-related junk bonds are outstanding. And a lot of them are going to go bust in the next year if oil prices stay at the current price, uh, which it looks like they're still falling today. So they could be a lot lower a few months from now than they are today. Yeah. Yeah. Saw forty eight dollar oil earlier today, WTI, and uh, yeah, and that's down from a hundred and some. Yeah, what eight months ago, right? Sure, that's a huge drop, and it's a safe bet that a lot of the um, the junk bonds that were issued in the in the last year assumed oil of a hundred dollars a barrel or more. 
And so, in effect, the, you know, the cash flow that underpins the value of these bonds has been cut in half. And, and so that means the value of these bonds is going to plunge, or is already plunged, but uh, some of them are going to plunge to zero. And so we'll see what that does to the U.S. economy. You know, is it as big as the, um, the subprime mortgage sector um, in, in terms of its impact on the rest of the economy? We'll see. It's going yeah. to be fairly serious, though. And then, I wonder, I wonder, John, to what extent uh, the money-centered banks, the too big to fail banks, uh, are stuck in these in these bad loans. <laughs> they're they're always stuck in everything that blows up. You know, going right. back to the Asian contagion in the 1990s, and and uh, continuing through long-term capital management and Mexico and Russia's default, all of that. Right. The big banks were at the center of everything. So it's a they're, safe bet that they are. Uh, front and center for the shale oil bust as well, you know. And, and so they're it, so they're among those uh, ugly bodies uh, out there, oh, uh, stranded oh, out there in the in the in the dry ocean. Probably, basically. you know, we we haven't seen that come out yet, but yeah. um, it, it's a safe bet that if the um, shale oil junk bond sector tanks, uh, that a lot of big banks will have some serious rate-offs mm-hmm. in the next few years. You know, that's that's kind of a given because these guys are are so central to all the stupidity that happens. In we, the just, yeah. we were just talking to uh, Michael Oliver, and his, his belief is that that's definitely what is starting to, uh, to uh, infect the equity markets, and he doesn't think there's any turning back. He thinks that we're in for quite a dive in the equity markets uh, as a result, and, and he sees this exactly what you're talking about, the credit, mm-hmm. um, the credit markets being infected by the lower oil price. And, uh, uh, of course, you hear all of the, the talking heads, and they want to spin things in a positive way to keep people positive. And you hear them talking about how how great it is to have lower oil prices and lower gas uh, gas uh, prices at the pump. Uh, and um, well, we'll see. I mean, uh, maybe it is good for average Americans for a change, in a way, but uh, but not so good for Wall Street. Well, you can make the case that. Um, that it's poetic justice. You know, this is really a huge tax cut for working people in terms of percent of their income. You know, if you're driving Uh back and forth to work and you're making minimum wage, you just got a tax cut that added, you know, probably a couple of bucks an hour (laughs) to your your wages. That's a very big deal. Uh, But it's horrendous for the, the banks and the oil companies and the pension funds and the hedge funds that um, are overloaded, overexposed to shale oil. So the question is, from a, from a societal standpoint, it's not clear which one of those things is more important. Uh, but from a financial market standpoint, it's pretty clear the junk bonds are more important because that's, oh, yeah. that's and then, instant instability. And then, of course, uh, you talk about poetic, and ju- uh, poetic justice. Yes, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. But in the end, what happens when the banks go down, they just load more debt on the taxpayer and on the average people. So Yeah, yeah. We have to talk about Citigroup and its role in the, uh, the, the most recent banking law when we get a chance today. But yeah, absolutely. Um, when this yep. blows up, see, that's why I'm not so sure that the stock market, I mean, it, it sure feels like the beginning of a very nasty bear market. But um, at the same time, we've got the world's central banks and the world's governments all intervening in equity markets surreptitiously. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no technical reason why the U.S. can't print a trillion dollars. And mm-hmm. throw it at the S and P five hundred and send mm-hmm. this thing right back up. So, yeah. uh, you know, these aren't markets anymore. They're they're yeah. just varying levels of manipulation. And right. So, yeah, in, in normal times, the um, the oil price tanking like this and taking the energy sector down with it 
would would give you a, a 15 20% stock market correction <laughs> with almost automatically and and now if it leads the governments of the world to overreact and and buy too many equities you know to keep things le- even um, maybe we see a huge bull market come out of this because you just can't know anymore because it's uh, it's all, it all depends on the decisions made by individuals behind closed doors who have unlimited power. Mm-hmm. And history shows that the more power somebody has, the, the dumber that they get, generally speaking. Yeah, they can just use their brute force to get their yeah. way, and they, yeah. and they don't have to be smart about, the, uh, the, about nature's markets any longer. Uh, they they uh, ha- have replaced uh, the god of the markets or the uh, natural law, in essence, and, and have decided that they are smarter than markets and they know better. Mm-hmm. So that's the philosophy that seems to be governing uh, America right now, increasingly so. But I'd like to get back to this notion of China and the key role. So what we did, we easy monetary policies, which Mr. Greenspan and then Mr. Bernanke imposed, uh, easy credit for average people. They could buy uh, flat-screen televisions and whatever else was made in China. Almost everything in those days, and still to a great extent, uh, is that consumers are, can, are buying are, is made in China. And uh, so we had this terrific, huge, ongoing, chronic trade deficit the United States has had since the 1970s, but it's, gone, it's grown dramatically higher uh, in recent years, especially as we imported so much from China. Um, and then China, and, and so where do we stand now? So China is having its own problems. China, um, uh, of course, we are not able to buy from China as we were, which you stated, which is part of the reason I suppose that China is having its its issues right now. Um, where do we go from here? Is what what do you, what is your outlook for China? And in light also of of what I think are some growing geopolitical divisions now. Uh, that that are very worrisome to me. That is uh, the Russian-Chinese um, cozy relationship. It seems to be getting stronger. The more sanctions that we impose on Russia, the closer Russia, uh, out of necessity, is warming up to China. I'm reading in the New York Times yesterday also political things that are going on within China I think are very troublesome. Uh, the headlines in the New York Times yesterday, Maoist, Maoist in China give a new life attack uh, and that they are attacking dissidents. Uh, and it sounds like things are turning fairly ugly in some ways. There's a real strong anti-Western sentiment I'm, I'm, ga- I'm gathering from reading this article, uh, a hatred in essence for uh, against the West that's coming out of China. All of this cannot be good for the global economy, can it be? <laughs> Jay, Jay, you just covered a book-length subject there. You know, that oh. There's a lot going on out there that... Uh, that really deserves an in-depth treatment uh, if if we're going to understand what's really going on in the world. Um, But um, the the general theme of a lot of this is that in good times, it's very easy to put your differences aside and make money. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it gets harder and harder to make money, you know, as soon as the, the, uh, the cycle turns down a bit, then all the old tensions bubble back up. And so you're seeing it in, in the, uh, the BRICS countries, where they are really tired of, uh, of the dollar being this dominant currency and giving the U.S. disproportionate power around yes. the world. And, uh, and the U.S. Is, is blundering around using that power very unwisely, so they have a point. <laughs> and, and what they're trying to do now is bypass the dollar in a lot of ways. They're cutting bilateral trade deals where they just use their own currencies to trade. Right. 
Right. And, you know, they're setting up parallel um, banking institutions, like uh, um, uh, parallel, you know, something like the, the SWIFT uh, settlement system in the well, West. Well, they've had to in part, uh, John, yeah. because the United States has cut, for example, cut yes. Russia out of the SWIFT system. Yeah, and what did we expect? You know, yeah. did we think we were omnipotent that we could cut major countries out of the uh, the bank settlement system so their banks couldn't participate in global finance mm-hmm. and have them not respond to it? Well, they they are responding to it. They're bypassing the dollar in a lot of ways, and so um, you know, Russia and China are uh, are forming a fairly deep alliance in which. Uh, um, you know, their, their militaries are working together and their, um, China is using its vast resources or vast financial resources to buy Russia's vast energy resources. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they don't need the U.S. in a lot of ways. So that, that's terrible for us because uh, um, a, a big part of what we consider to be the good that we do in the world comes from the fact that everybody needs dollars. And you take that away, and U.S. power is diminished dramatically in the world, and the dollar becomes a lot less valuable eventually. Like right, right now, it's still the world's reserve currency, and there's a flight to quality going on because everybody else is in worse shape than us. But at the other end of this process, if a huge amount of global trade is taking place um, in other currencies besides the dollar, and those other currencies have proven themselves to be stable enough to be decent reserve currencies on at least a small scale, you know, 10 or 20% of a central bank's reserves could be in yuan or yen or rubles or whatever. Uh, and, and that means the dollar is so much less valuable and useful than it was. And that therefore fewer dollars are going to be need to, or will need to be held by the world's central banks and trading companies. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see all of those dollars come back home and that will be very inflationary at the time when it happens. And mm-hmm. so, so we have this deflationary trough that we're going through right now. But at the other end of it is a currency crisis in which the dollar is no longer the world's sole reserve currency and no longer as, um, as in demand as it was. And meanwhile, we're, we're continuing to increase the quantity of dollars in the world. So at some point, that imbalance comes back to bite us. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly, uh, it certainly seems like it should. You know, it's, it's interesting to note that uh, some of our closest trading partners and closest friends like Canada, New Zealand, Australia have all uh, set up bilateral currency arrangements with China as well. So that tells mm-hmm. me that China is now uh, in the strong enough position that they can say they want to get paid in their own currency. They don't have to take dollars anymore. So it's not only sort of the the countries that we have labeled as rogue nations, which I think they're labeled as rogue because they don't want to play ball with our monetary system, but that uh, our our best friends are actually uh, trading uh, between their own currencies and, and the Chinese sure. currency. So it's and, a, and- What's surprising about this is that it's a surprise. <laughs> you know, China is, uh, by some measures, as big as the U.S., their economy. Um, and they, they have, what, one-fourth or one-fifth of the world's population. So they should be central to the global economy. Everybody should be trading with them. We should be using their currency alongside the dollar because they're, they're that big, you know? Mm-hmm. There's no reason why it shouldn't be happening mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. for us to oppose it just makes us look stupid in the first place and um, leads to us losing in the long run anyhow. So yeah, the long we should run, be encouraging I think, it. 
Yeah, yeah I think the long run is, is the key, and probably people are not looking at the long run. They're looking at the short run and how they can continue to print worthless units of money and use those to go buy and, and uh, finance military escapades and whatever else we do. You know, John, I'm told we only have less than four minutes uh, here to go, and there's so much more to cover. One of the things that I noticed, Putin talked about how if we put sanctions against Russia, it's going to come back uh, like a boomerang to hit us. I'm wondering if, if some of what's going on now in the oil patch, for example, uh, you know, with the ruble collapsing, uh, it is cheap for Russia to produce oil, and they're producing more oil now uh, than, than they've ever produced, from what I've understood, uh, from what I've read recently. And, of course, they're trading with China, not in dollars, but they could be using gold. They could be using their own currencies. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Do you think this is something that might be lasting, that Putin may be getting the last laugh here on this thing? <laughs> this is such a fascinating chess match. Because if you go back a couple of years, or even one year, um, the, the consensus in, um, in, in the world of global politics was that uh, Putin was this ruthless, brilliant tactician, and the, the leaders in the West were pygmies by comparison. You know, he, he wasn't a great guy, but he was much smarter and tougher than our guys. You know, that was, that was the consensus. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise that the U.S. and the rest of the West lashed out at him. You know, they wanted to bring him down a couple of pegs, and they used oil as the mechanism to do that. And, and yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think we thought it through completely because uh, we, we are now, because we're, we've had such an energy boom in the last few years, um, we're producing a huge amount of oil. And that means we are hurt as well by falling oil prices and we've got all these junk bonds and yada, yada, you know, the stuff we talked about before. So it's already coming back to bite us. And if Russia gets through this and in the process cuts all these other deals with, with uh, other countries and, and comes out at the other end stronger, then, then Putin is going to be that much more impressive from the point of view of real politics around the world. You know? So he will have won. And, uh, and right now the jury is still out because Russia is kind of in turmoil. But uh, there's no reason why they can't survive it. They have quite, you know, they've been running trade surpluses for a long time, so they have a lot of foreign exchange reserves. They've been loading up on gold for the last couple of years, and that gold is up dramatically in ruble terms. So that was a really good investment for them. You know, they yeah. bought gold, and now it's up, what, 60 or 70 percent in domestic terms in, in just the last few months. Indeed, so they, pre- make- they pres- yeah they preserve their purchasing power that way, just as yes, uh, as do. we need to do as individuals. John, one minute left, so I'm, unfortunately we're out of time. Just uh, I, what do you think we're going to see now with the stock market coming under pressure? I don't know where it's uh, trading now. If it's down down uh, 126 today on the Dow, do you yeah. think uh, Miss Yellen is going to uh, is going to actually start uh, well reversing her tapering strategy here? Well, see see that's the question. What what level on the Dow causes us to panic again? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to run a contest on dollarclaps.com pretty soon where you, uh, you, you get a, an autographed book. If you oh. pick the level of the Dow at which the U.S. government panics and reverses um, tapering and goes back. Oh, what a great sport. What a yeah, great sport, John. Yeah. So dollarcollapse.com, yeah. folks. Go there. Yeah. Uh, participate in that little contest when John makes it available. But go there to read what John has to say uh, on a very re- regular basis as well as all the other commentary that's there. John, we are out of time. I'm sorry. So much more to talk to you about. Uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Great. Thanks, Jay. 
Thank you very much, John. Well, next week, folks, I'm going to be talking to the CEO of one of my favorite mining companies. It's Robert Juster of Columbus Gold. That's a company with a 50% stake in a very major gold deposit being uh, developed now by a major mining company in South America. Uh, and also, uh, I'm going to be uh, talking uh, to my other main guest is going to be uh, I've lost a track of it. Chuck Butler from uh, Energold is going to be, uh, or f- I'm sorry, from Enerbank is going to be with me. Uh, and I look forward to talking to Chuck about his views on the markets um, and uh, currencies, especially in gold, too, which I know he'll have some great insights uh, to talk to us about. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, uh, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. <laughs> 